0: I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but just pretend, like imagine, okay? Have you ever struggled uh, with Christianity, with if you really believe it or not? Now, there are many people in this room who haven't. There are people who've, it's just not a struggle. They have a deep confidence in Christianity. But that's not all of us. Believing in Christianity, in the things that Christianity claims, that Jesus Christ, who lived and died, that he was God. And that a few days after he died, he rose from the dead. Now, for some of you in this room, and there's more of you than you can imagine, it's a real struggle To know with confidence that Jesus is God. That he did rise from the dead. That he will return and make all things new. And that pain and evil will be removed from this earth. And there will come a moment where we'll look back 10,000 years. And see no pain and no suffering and no evil. So in the messages this Sunday and next Sunday, I'm going to come at this issue of doubt, of struggle. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to come at it not by trying to take various beliefs of Christianity and things like he rose from the dead and proving that he actually did or presenting evidence. Instead, what I'm going to do this week and next week is is present to you two key conditions that make belief difficult in our society today. The first condition is religion. The second is knowledge. This week I'm going to deal with religious pluralism. We know that there are lots of different people with lots of different beliefs and if that you were raised in Morocco, chances are you would have a very different religion. This week I'm going to deal with this issue. How can we have confidence in the Christian view of things even when we know that our persuasion of Christianity could be an accident of the location of our birth? Next week I'm going to deal with the issue of knowledge. The way our culture understands what you actually know in contrast to stuff you actually believe. These two issues... Religious pluralism and the way we think about knowledge. These I think are the two key factors that make belief difficult for people who live in our society. Now, obviously, this world is a very diverse place, and people are very diverse, and the way we think is different. So it could be that you struggle with belief, and that has nothing to do with it. Um, Well, just stick around. Maybe we'll come back to your particular issue. Now, all right, if you have a Bible, find the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus. Exodus. Find the 20th chapter. Exodus chapter 20. This is a key moment in the development of Christianity. This is when Israel has gathered around a mountain and God is giving Israel the Ten Commandments. And God spoke, Exodus chapter 20 verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first of the Ten Commandments. And here the Bible clearly identifies one God and one religion over against all other gods and all other religions. And furthermore, this gives rise to the Christian belief that the greatest sin... Of all the sins you can commit is the sin of worshiping another God. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 45. This passage that uh, Grace read to us. Isaiah chapter 45. Look down at verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Look at verse 7. The end of verse 6. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Here again, we have this strong, aggressive claim that every other God is false, fake, An imposter. Now turn to our reading from John. John chapter 14. John chapter 14 verse 6. There are some people who like to claim that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different. That The God of the Old Testament is filled with wrath and the God of the New Testament is filled with love. <laughs> to which I like to just remind people read the Old Testament, there is surprising grace. And the most wrathful statements in the Bible don't come in the Old Testament, they come from the lips of Jesus in the New Testament. There is a deep continuity between the Old and the New Testament. And here is another example look at John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is deeply consistent with the passage out of Exodus and the passage out of Isaiah. But let me give three quick comments about John 14:6. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. Number one: this is an exclusive remark. Every religious founder of every other religion says, I'm a prophet who has come to show you the way to God. But Jesus doesn't say that. All of the world's religions, they say, there's a central figure that says, I'm the prophet that shows you the way to God. But here, only in Christianity, is a founder who has the audacity to say, I am God and I've come to find you. This is unique and it's utterly exclusive. Not, I've come to show you the way to God, but God comes to us and says, I am God and I've come to show you the way to myself. Number two, he doesn't say, I am simply the way, the truth, and the life for those who happen to believe that I am the way, the truth, and the life. This claim is not just for Christians. He's making a universal claim. I am the way and the truth and the life for all people, no matter what you believe, no matter what the accidental location of your birth is. I am the way, the truth and the life. This is truth for everyone, Jesus is claiming. Number three, if Jesus is indeed the way the truth, and the life, then Christianity is better than every other religion. Now that's the subtext here. That every other claim about way, truth, and life is inferior. If there is one, then every other one is inferior. Now that's an audacious claim. Think about this. If Jesus is not just a prophet showing us how to find God then Christianity has to be a superior religion. Because it's claiming that this is God finding us. It has to be a better way of finding God if it's actually God finding us. Now, here are four key passages. Three key passages. The passage in Exodus. The passage in Isaiah. The passage in John. Not to mention the passage that Alec read to us from Acts. And... They claim that the Christian religion is the true religion. Now, this sounds intolerant and arrogant and offensive. It sounds like Christians imagine themselves to be superior. It feels like religious imperialism and a lack of respect. We live in a modern age... And a key way that various cultures here in America and throughout the Western world, throughout Europe, are pursuing respect and tolerance is through something called religious pluralism. This is different than cultural pluralism. Religious pluralism, it's the idea that the different religions are more or less equally true, that they're equally valid paths. To the truth. In other words, there is no one way. It could be that Jesus says I am the way the truth the and life and that's true for Christians, but for Buddhists there's another path, for Muslims there's another path, for Confucianists there's another path just on down the line. Religious pluralism, it's the you use this image to get the picture instead of thinking of Christianity as the center of truth. Put God at the center and all the religions as planets orbiting God. See, so just shift Jesus out of the center and put ultimate truth or love or Pharaoh. What's his name? Pharaoh. What's the song? Happy. Pharaoh who? Williams. He says happiness is truth. The truth, right in the center of it. So he's putting that there. Just take any of take the the exclusiveness of Jesus and shift Christianity into one of the planets orbiting around ultimate truth, and make ultimate truth whatever your these religions all have in common. Now the issue here is not just one of arrogance. It not only sounds arrogant to claim. That your religion is the truth and all other religions fall short. The problem our modern world has with this is not only arrogance, it's also violence. After all, we've seen our world torn apart by religion. Part of the reason for the rejection of this kind of view that my religion is right and the others are wrong. Part of the reason our modern world rejects that viscerally... is because for too long that view of your religion has been entangled with coercion and political power... and with the denial of freedom, freedom of thought, the freedom of conscience. So it can appear that renouncing the claim that your religion is the true religion, will lead our world to a more peaceful existence. Now, there are three primary ways of coming to religious pluralism in our culture today. I've only got time to deal with two of them so that we can make it out before lunch. Um, the, The first one... Is this. It's this, it's, it's the view that all major religions teach basically the same thing. That all major religions teach, basically teach the same thing. This is one way that some people come at religious pluralism and embrace it. When you dig beneath the surface, all the distinctions fall away, and you see there's a hidden unity. Uh, the most famous A person to embrace this in years past was Gandhi. I'm going to give you a quote by him in just a minute. The, The current most famous proponent of this is the Dalai Lama. Very intelligent, very persuasive view of this. But here's the quote from Gandhi. His is shorter than the Dalai Lama's, so I'll give you Gandhi's. One may drink out of the same great rivers with others, but one need not use the same cup. The soul of religion is one but is encased in a multitude of forms. My position is that all the great religions are fundamentally equal. And what Gandhi's getting at is they teach fundamentally the same thing. So the idea is that the religions don't contradict each other deep down. They complement each other. They're simply expressing the same truth through different religious systems. Now, first of all, there is, there is wonderful truth in this argument. It is very important for Christians to understand that while Jesus Christ is absolutely unique when we set him against the backdrop of the other great religious leaders, in significant ways, the moral teachings of Christianity are right in line with the moral teachings of the other great religions. That, there's... There's a lot of truth there. However, there's a problem. It is not fair to divorce the moral teachings of a religion from the dogmatic teachings of a religion. We live in a culture that wants to divorce ethics from other claims. No religion in its orthodox view, allows you to divorce its ethics from its dogmatic claims about reality. Only modernists who do not believe deeply in any one religion make such a claim. You can't just divorce the moral teachings of Jesus from who Jesus claims he is and what he claims is the nature of reality. The... Ethics and theology are one integral whole. And when you take the ethics of Christianity and you embed them in the other claims of Christianity, you get something different than when you take similar ethics and embed them in the other claims of Hinduism or Buddhism or even Judaism. Now, a second problem with this idea is that all the religions teach basically the same thing, is that the different religions turn on different axes. The questions Hinduism asks and answer are just not the questions that the gospel and Christianity are concerned about. When you really study different religions, they're asking very different questions. And this whole notion that you can compare religions by making a chart, what they believe about this and what they believe about that, it doesn't work. It's like somebody summarizing what you just told them and getting it completely wrong, but insisting that their way is the right way. That they're saying what you really said. And you said, no, you're just on the wrong page, you know. And so at the end of the day, there are significant, irreconcilable differences between the major faiths. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, those three religions believe in a personal God who holds people accountable for their beliefs and practices. Buddhism does not. Buddhism does not believe in a personal God that holds people accountable for their beliefs and practices. That's an irreconcilable difference. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews and Buddhists fail to love God as God really is. If Muslims and Jews are right about Jesus not being God, then Christians fail to love God as God really is. It's just wrong to say that all the religions are the same. The second way that people come to religious pluralism, one, is by not really listening to the religions and instead claiming that they all teach the same. The second primary way that people come to religious pluralism is is the idea, this notion that each religion sees part of the truth, but no religion sees all of the truth. Now this goes back to an ancient Buddhist parable. You've probably heard it where a king in northern India gathered together, five or six, anybody know? Blind men, that's right. And he gets an elephant and he leads it out in front of these blind men and they've never seen an elephant and he lets each blind man touch only one part of the elephant. One blind man touches his trunk, one his, his um, leg, one his tail, one his ear, one his belly. And then the king asks them one by one, what's an elephant like? And according to the parable... They each answer according to the part they felt. They've never heard of an elephant. It's never been in their education. It's never been a part of them. And he he lets them feel part. And then he says, so what is an elephant? And one said, well, an elephant, you know, it's it's like a tree. And another says, an elephant's like a snake. And another says, it's like, you know, I don't know, a drum or something like this. And they start arguing with each other about what an elephant is. And so the way the Buddhist parable goes, that's... That's the perfect example of what the different religions of the world are. All the religions think they see the whole elephant, the whole truth, but nobody knows really anything more than a tiny bit of the truth, and they're extrapolating from that arrogantly to the whole. Now, again, there's great truth in this argument. The truth is this. The truth is bigger than any one person ...or one religion can grasp. Absolutely, Christianity has always claimed that. It has never shied away from that. Genuine Christianity has never claimed to know all there is to know about God. I really don't know anybody who believes that. On that level, the parable stating an obvious. Orthodox Christianity insists that no person, no concept, no system, no theology can fully grasp God... But here's the problem with the argument. The argument gives this admirable air of humility about the statement that the truth is greater than any one person or one religion. But think back to the story of the blind men and the elephant. The problem is the story is not told from the point of view of the blind men. Who tells the story? The king. The story is told from the point of view of the one who sees the whole. How can you know all the blind men only have part of the elephant unless you can see the whole elephant? The only way that you can say all the religions have part of the truth is if you see the whole truth and they don't. See, when you use this argument to neutralize religions, which position are you putting yourself in? The blind men? No, you're putting yourself in the position of the one who sees the whole. You're you're saying all those religions are arrogant. But modern Western enlightenment view enables us to see what no world religion for thousands of years has ever seen. So all you're doing is neutralizing everybody else and putting yourself in the same position you've just denied to them. Which is a confident claim in the truth. See, the deep flaw in the argument is that it's not applying to itself. What it's insisting every religion applies to itself. If you say, I don't know which religion is true, that can be humble. That can be a statement of humility. But if you say, no one can know the truth, now you're being dogmatic. And you're making the same type of claim that Christianity makes when it says, I know the truth. You're saying that you have the view of the whole. And that's the very claim you're criticizing. Now, the, the, the third argument is that you can't really see out of your own culture. And we're all bound by the plausibility structures of our culture. I don't have time to go into that now. It's probably the most powerful current prevailing version of this, which we'll have to come back to another time. Let me summarize what I'm saying, though, about religious pluralism. Because if we had time to get to the cultural view of knowledge, I'd end up with a similar critique and it would all add up to the same summary. And it's this. Pluralism advocates tolerance and respect. But too often, it's an imperialistic attempt to decree that believers of all faiths must interpret their beliefs... In the way of secularism. And the great lie there is that secularism isn't a belief, it's a fact, but it's not. See, on this level, pluralism is hiding behind the mask of tolerance. It has the illusion of generous inclusion and diversity, but it's riddled with unspoken intolerance and exclusion. In other words, Religious pluralism has a hidden double standard. It doesn't apply its own critique to itself. Its own standard to itself. And you know what? That's cheating. That's logically cheating. You can't use the scalpel on everybody else's belief, but not on your own. Any thought can be thought, and any argument can be argued, but there are some arguments and some thoughts that just can't be lived out. Pluralism cannot be lived out. It's a beautiful thought. It's a lousy way of life. It doesn't work. You can muster all the arguments you want, but you can't actually live it. What I'm saying is, there is no such thing as religious pluralism. There is only religious exclusivism. The religious pluralist is excluding all of the world's religions in the name of its own basic beliefs. So at least Christianity has the courage to stand up in a culture that hates such talk and to own it. I can have a lovely discussion with a secularist who doesn't believe in Christianity, but let's at least come to the table without the mask. Now... Here's something positive about religious pluralism. The positive thing is the goal. The goal of religious pluralism often is unity and peace. A deep fatigue at the religious violence in our world. At the arrogance of too many Christians. There should be no doubt that one of the big reasons for some of the worst problems in our world today is religious belief. But, if you end up with a pluralism that lacks love, with a tolerance, are you reading the newspaper? Are you really free to believe what you want in America today? We've got a number of enormous, widespread Things happening in our culture that are playing out in all the news media where our culture will crush you if your belief doesn't line up with their belief. Our culture has no problem with moral absolutes so long as it's the moral absolutes of the culture. So what, what use is tolerance if it's unloving? What use is religious pluralism if it's not kind and accepting? We live in a society that says you think you know that your religion is the truth and if that's the case, then you will be closed-minded and you will be dogmatic and you will be arrogant and you will treat non-believers badly and you will deprive them of their goods and torture them and even kill them. And I want to say intolerance is definitely a problem. But is the solution to the problem of intolerance a denial of exclusivity? No. See, that's the flaw in the argument. Definitely the problem is intolerance. But what's the solution? Is the solution to remove religion from culture? Well, ask China when it removed religion and Russia when it removed religion. There is no empirical evidence that a culture shorn of religion is more tolerant than a culture with religion. In fact, the historical evidence of the 20th century says, hey, the issue is not religion. We can hold up religious cultures, and we can hold up officially atheist cultures, and they will be simultaneously brutal. The issue is not exclusive beliefs. Where are the studies to prove this? And this brings me to my last point, which is my main point for this morning. Christian exclusivism is the way to the most peaceable society. Christian exclusivism is the way to the most tolerant society. Christian exclusivism is the answer to the yearning of the pluralist. Christian exclusivism is the way to the most inclusive life possible. Let me show you what I mean. And what I'm going to do is totally rip off a pastor in New York by the name of Tim Keller who nails this. 2,000 years ago. The world of the Roman Empire. Now think, uh, my son's son's always asking me about Zeus and Poseidon. They're reading uh, Percy Jackson and, you know, all this stuff. This revival of Greek mythology, which are wonderfully creative books. And we know that the Greco-Roman world was a world that believed everyone had their own God. Right? The pantheon of gods. Oh, great, Christianity. That's what happened in the passage Alec read to us. Oh, there's a new God. Well, come on and tell us about the new God, right? And now isn't that an open society? A society that's got like little cubicles and you've got to believe, oh, we'll put your God here and they're all there together. And everybody, that's the Greco-Roman society. No one has the truth. Everybody has their God. But the Christians come along in the midst of that. History tells us this. The Christians come along and they say, we have the true God. All the, You know, that's what Paul did, right? He said the Pantheon, Pfft, here's the only God. So the Greco-Roman world had what looked like the tolerant worldview. And the Christians had what looked like the narrow, arrogant, exclusivist worldview. But remember I said every, any thought can be thought and any argument can be argued, but not every thought and argument can be lived out. How did they actually live this out? You see, the ways the Christians and the Greco-Romans lived was exactly the opposite of that belief. In the Greco-Roman world, the poor were despised. And in the Christian world, the poor were loved. In the Greco-Roman world, women were looked down upon. In the Christian world, women were empowered. In the Greco-Roman world, the the races and the classes were kept separate from one another. The Christian world brought them together promiscuously, promiscuously at the table. In fact, you read the documents, they're arguing rich and poor. We're all together, we're all one. We're all eating the same loaf and we're all drinking from the same cup. And it not only, look, because the Greco-Roman world kept them separate in the cult, in the religion, they were separate in where they live. The integration of neighborhoods is a historical outworking of the table. Now that's for another time. That's a profound shift in the way cities organize themselves and it's, Because the priest and the religious caste live close to the temple. But once you integrate everybody in the holy, they can live with one another. When the plagues came in the second century and people were dying in the cities and the streets were littered with people abandoned by their loved ones, it was the Christians who stayed. In the zombie apocalypse, it was the Christians who opened the gates to those who were vulnerable. It were the Christians who stayed. And in many cases, the Christians died in place of the ones they nursed to health. So let's think about this. It is a fact of the historical record that on the one hand, the Christians had the absolute most narrow worldview because they thought they had the truth. And on the other hand, the Greco-Roman world says, we don't know who has the truth. Everybody's got their own. So on that level, they were the broadest. They were the most tolerant. Now, why did Christians live the most peaceful life? Why did they live more tolerantly, more generously, More sacrificially. Why did the Christians live the most inclusive life possible out of the most exclusive truth claim? That's the irony. Just look at our culture. We are not moving toward intellectual freedom. As we embrace religious pluralism... We are devolving into a more intolerant society. Here's the answer to the irony at the center of this, that Christians have the most exclusive belief and the most inclusive lifestyle. The reason, some of you remember right after 9-11... How so many people were arguing that the problem with the world was religious fundamentalism. I was living um, in England at the time and Janelle and I's uh, favorite show to watch was West Wing. It's still what I find to be one of the most brilliantly written TV shows. I'm not nearly as liberal in my political views on some issues as they were there, but I still remember the episode where they were trying to capture the gist of 9-11 and they were talking with these teenagers and they were saying um, the Islamic uh, jihadists that, that you know, flew the plane into the towers equals, and they have this f- fascinating discussion, Christian fundamentalists. This was the argument that a lot of people were using right after 9-11. That the problem with our world was religious fundamentalism. If you're a fundamentalist, if you really believe you have the truth, this is what happens. But as I've showed you, everyone is a fundamentalist. Everybody has a fundamental belief. The issue is not fundamentalism. It's what is your fundamental belief. You see, the pluralist that claims fundamentalism is wrong is claiming no religion is is absolutely true. That's their fundamental belief. On that level, you have to live by fundamental beliefs. The problem is not fundamentalism. Fundamentalism doesn't necessarily lead to terrorism. It all depends on what your fundamental belief is. After all, have you ever seen an Amish terrorist... And if there's no such thing as a fundamentalist, I don't know what an, Am- an Amish person is. You know why you will never see a genuine, authentic Amish who's a terrorist? Because of their fundamental beliefs. And you know what it is? If your fundamental is a man dying on a cross for his enemies. If the very heart of your self-image and your religion is a man sacrificing and praying for his enemies and dying for them, loving them. If that sinks into your heart of hearts, it is going to produce the kind of life that the early Christians lived. This is not fundamentalism. Issues, is what is your fundamental belief? The most inclusive life possible flows out of a deep belief that at the heart of reality is the cross. God Himself condescending to His enemies, and even in the midst of their torturing Him, praying for their forgiveness and loving them. The most inclusive life possible flows out of this. This is the truth. The truth is a God who became weak, who loved and died for the people who opposed him and forgave him. Take that into the center of your heart and you will be at the heart of the solution that our world needs. A genuinely Christian church exists for the glory of God and the good of its community. Whatever my neighbor's religion or non-religion, I will meet them and share with them in the pursuit of a common life in our, in our community. I can and I will join with my non-Christian neighbors in everything and anything that serves life against death and light against darkness. All of us in this city... We all share in this enterprise of living and building up a common life. When Christians affirm that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, we are not claiming to know everything. We are claiming to be on the way. And we're inviting others to join us as we press forward toward the fullness of the truth, toward that day. When we will be known, even as we have been known. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray.